0: Well, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to see you here this morning. We had a great week last week on Easter. It's a big Sunday for us, as it is for a lot of people. But I wanted to just tell you a couple things that the Lord did because of your faithfulness, your generosity, and your prayers. Uh, We had over 900 people on our campus uh, last Sunday, which is really amazing. We typically hit somewhere just over six. So to have 900 people here is incredible. We had several people commit their lives to Christ, which is just amazing. That's part of the focus of what we do there. We launched a brand new message series that we'll do part two of as well today. And, um, and you guys were incredibly generous so far for our Easter offering. The front of your message notes tells you a bit about that. We've had about 51 households contribute, which is incredible, and over $15,000. And so that's amazing, amazing, amazing. We're going to um, pick up. Part two of the Fix Your Upper message series that Pastor Will was telling you about a little bit in that uh, video. But if you want to go ahead and get started with me, you can grab out your message notes. They look like this. You're going to open them up to the inside, and I'll uh, get you started on there, all right? And while you're doing that, if you are interested at all, at the bottom of your message notes, there's a little bit about one of the emphasis that we're focusing on. For the, uh, the Easter offering, it's the, uh, the special needs room, the, the other sensory environment that we want to create. And uh, your Easter offering will help launch that. That is for families who have a special needs kid or a kid who needs different kinds of sensory experience than what we typically offer. And so there's some training and some room assessment and redesign that needs to be done with that space. And as soon as we hit our goal, we'll be able to kick that in motion. All right. Well, this is the second week of our Fix Your Upper message series, and like I said, I'm so glad to see you come back. The Sunday after Easter always gets pastors nervous because you don't know if people are coming back or not, and so I'm really, really glad that you're here. I'm reminded of the guy that was talking to a pastor after the Easter service, and the pastor said to him, hey, I haven't seen you around a whole lot, and I think you really need to step up and join God's army. And the guy said, Well, I'm already a part of God's army. And he said, Well, I've only seen you here on Christmas and Easter. And he says, I'm a part of the Secret Service. I'm a part of the Secret Service. So I'm glad to see that you guys are here and you're fully a part of God's army. I want to talk with you today about the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a prophet in the Old Testament, his story is spectacular. It's, it's a wonderful story in the Bible. And the reason that it's so interesting is for a variety of reasons, but, but one of them is, 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 is that there's just some really good historical data. And so some of you are history buffs like me, and there's just a lot about the nation of Israel and the world around. This is the story of the nation of Israel interacting with the Persian Empire. This was an amazingly strong superpower in the world back in the day, a few hundred years before Jesus. And they had conquered much of the known world, what we would consider uh, the the Middle East, North Africa, a lot of uh, what we now call Eastern uh, Asia or the Near East, it's called. And they were just the superpower of the world. And you get to read about a guy by the name of Cyrus and Artaxerxes, and these are names that show up in other history books, so it's just fascinating to see the intersection of our Bible with the kinds of history that maybe you study in uh, freshman uh, college classes. So it's interesting on that level. It's interesting on another level, too, because we get to see God's faithfulness as he continues to work in the people called Israel, his people, and his faithfulness. They go on a journey that lasts generations, hundreds, thousands of years, and, and you get to see God's faithfulness on display so it's fascinating for that reason, and it's, it's fascinating because there's one particular gentleman by the name of Nehemiah, and though his dates are different than ours, and his geography is different than ours, and his heritage is different than ours, there's so much about his life that we can relate to. And so in this message series, we're going to trace his life and what happened to him, and we're going to learn some ways of how God wants to build and rebuild in our lives. So we're calling it Fixer Upper in part because that's exactly what's happening in this section of literature that we're going to look at. So if you have your Bible with you, you can go to chapter one of Nehemiah where we'll begin. And over the next several weeks, we're going to kind of plow through the first six, seven chapters of that book as we look at how God worked in this very normal and different, but at the same time, similar to us guy and worked in his life. So you can go ahead and get ready for all that. But, but the other reason we're looking at Fixer Upper is because our church is nearing the completion of a of a project here in our own building. We're expanding our kids' space. And whenever I go through a time of construction here in our building or Jill and I do a project at home, I can't help but think about the parallels between how a building and a life um, is drawn. The parallel between the building of a building and the building of a life. It was one of Jesus' favorite metaphors to talk about. When he would talk about the way God wants to work in your life, he would often liken your life to a building. And I referenced it last week, but I think it's worth remembering that in one of the most interesting and memorable parables Jesus told, he said that your life is much like a house and it's built on a foundation. It's built on a foundation of sand and when the winds come and it beats against the house, the house is destroyed because the foundation doesn't hold. Or your house can be like a house that's built on the foundation of rock, a very solid foundation and when the storms come and beat against the house, the house will hold. And this message series is all about making sure that the foundation is solid. So we'll sing the song that Will did a little bit, a handful of times, to remind ourselves that we are here and we're building our lives on a firm foundation. There is no substitute for a life built on Christ, there is no other foundation that lasts. There's no other foundation that makes a difference. And our whole church exists for the sole reason of elevating Jesus and the importance of him in your life. And so if you don't know him today, you're in the right place. We built this church with you in mind. You're in the right place. But we want you to know what the central message is. We will love you and we'll love you in part because we want you to understand that Jesus loves you so much more than we can. And a life built on him makes all the difference makes all the difference. And if you know Jesus, we're here to remind you and encourage you and push you to make Jesus truly the center, the foundation of your life. So in your message notes, I want to start by talking about a handful of things as we talk about building lives, rebuilding in this case. We're calling today Broken Walls because the story of Nehemiah begins that way. Nehemiah found himself living in the capital city of Persia, not his homeland, where his heritage was, there had been all kinds of political upheaval, and Nehemiah finds himself in the capital city of Persia, and his position is that of a servant. He's not a self-directed individual. He works directly for the king. In fact, he is the cup bearer for the king. He's the cup bearer. Now, the cupbearer had a very important role. First of all, the cupbearer had a lot of access to the king. And so a lot of people would come to the cupbearer and offer the cupbearer some money so that they could use the visibility that the cupbearer had with the king to promote the agenda that that person who was making the bribe had. And so if you could have the king's audience, that was awesome. But if you couldn't have the king's audience, you want the audience of the people who had the king's audience. And so Nehemiah had a lot of access to the king. But he was a servant. The other thing that the cupbearer did is the cupbearer often served as what we would call the food taster for the king. So before the king would uh, drink a glass of wine, the cupbearer would drink it. And then everybody would look at him. Is he going to (laughs) live? And if he lived, then the king would go ahead and drink a little bit too. It's a very important position. But it's the position of a servant. And throughout this book, you're going to see the role, the hats that Nehemiah wears change. He's going to move from a slave cupbearer and through the movement of God in his life that we're going to talk about today, he's going to become a builder, a builder, from cupbearer to builder. It's an elevated position and the responsibility, heavy on this side, but also heavy on the builder side. But by the time we come to the end of Nehemiah's story, he moves from cupbearer to builder to the governor of his hometown. His life goes on a development journey and God elevates him. And what is important to Nehemiah's heart and what's important to his life and what he wants his life to be about, God comes alongside and does more in Nehemiah's life than he ever thought possible. And our prayer as a staff for you as we're walking through this message series over the next few weeks is is that the same thing would happen in your life. That there would be the changing of hats, as it were. That that you would move from wherever you are more into the place that God wants you to be. And don't be surprised that the very place God wants you to be is deep down where you ultimately want to be yourself. God has this remarkable way of coming alongside and making the deep dreams of our hearts a reality. God has this way of coming alongside of us and pulling the significance that we want for ourselves, pulling it out from the shadows and bringing it into the light, of doing in our relationships what we want done anyway. That's what God does. And our prayer has been that God would do that exact same thing for you in this message series. But we're going to have to get our hands dirty. And so just kind of to help me remember that, I brought along a pair of gloves I've worn a few times this week. Like I said, we're doing a little bit of construction here in the building here at church, and um, I, I like to think of myself as a manly man, but the truth is, is I don't like to get dirty. So I know those two things are in conflict. You can you can whisper; it's all right; it's fine. I know those two things are in common, not I don't, I don't like to get dirty. Like I remember a few years ago, Jill and I had gone on vacation, and like we often do just before vacation, we'd clean the house, and there were some things in the fridge we needed to get rid of, so we stuffed them in the trash can outside, and we'd go off on vacation. And on that particular week that we were gone, nobody carried the trash from the trash can down to the road to be picked up. So when we got back, I hit the garage door open, and we start walking into the garage, and there is this smell. And It's horrible we had put chicken in yeah and it was summer and it does whatever chicken does in the sun without refrigeration. and it was the worst and most gross smelling thing in the world and i remember opening up the, the the lid there and then just like almost like you know you know about to lose my my lunch and and and, and it was it was disgusting it was disgusting and i remember thinking that kind of trash and, 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 and filth, uh, you know, I'm not going to touch that stuff. This week I was doing some work around here and um, had to pick up some, some trash, and I'm just thinking, I, I don't want to get my, my hands dirty, so I put on gloves. And when you think about, about gloves, they can keep dirt off, but the other thing they do is they can make your hands a little tough. Uh, they, they can, they, you can pick up stuff that's rougher, that sometimes will maybe a little sticky, so maybe splintery kind of stuff, and it protects the hands. And so today the metaphor for us is, is that we're going to put on our gloves and we're going to do some work that might be a little dirty and maybe a little smelly. And we're going, to, we're going to handle some rough stuff. And the whole reason we're doing it is because in the building phase of life, when God's building your life, there's some rough work to be done. And it's not for the faint of heart. And and if you're like me, and maybe you have a little bit of an aversion to dirt, and and maybe your hands aren't as tough and weathered as as they could be, uh, it's appropriate to kind of mentally prepare for that. And so to do that, let me walk you through a handful of statements right now, all right? We're going to talk about broken walls and rebuilding, but the first thing to keep in mind is that the hardest person you will ever lead in life is you. The hardest person you're ever going to lead in life is you. Some of you have a formal job, you have a title, you have an office, and there's a a, a description of your role in your company right under your name. You're the leader, you're the boss, you're the manager, you're the foreman, Um, you're the teacher in a classroom, and you have a formal job responsibility to lead people. Some of you are your parents, and you have a, a role as a leader in the life of your kids. But the statement that everybody is a leader is true because everybody in this room has one person they're supposed to lead and they're supposed to do it consistently. They're supposed to do it well. They're supposed to do it effectively. And that person that you're supposed to lead in life more than anybody else is you. And self-leadership is difficult. It's hard. I mean, I I used to be a high school teacher. I taught freshmen a couple years and, and I felt like every morning walking into that Freshman classroom, it was kind of like my job today is to herd cats, you know? It doesn't go well. I've raised middle school kids. There should be a medal for that, right? I've had a certain amount of leadership there. Hey, I, I, I lead a church. I lead a staff team, and, and, and some of the most joyful moments of my life are here, but along with the joy, sometimes it's just difficult. But the hardest person I've ever had to lead is me. I mean, guys, I want to be honest with you. I can, I can lie to myself. I can tell myself things are good when they're not. Here's one of my favorite lies I tell myself. I use it over and over again. It goes like this. I know I need to do that thing, and I'll get to it in a bit. Now, when I say I'll get to it in a bit, it's all like, like me saying to my kids uh, when they were younger. They'd ask me, can we do something? Dad, can we go to Disney World? And I would give them the standard answer. Maybe. You know why maybe works? Because kids hear yes while you mean no. It works that way. And it puts off the argument. Dad, can we go do this? Dad, can we? Maybe. Well, I say to myself all the time, I'll do that in a bit, knowing that it needs my attention sooner than later. Self-leadership is a challenge. But here's the thing. When God comes alongside your life, when you make Jesus the Lord of your life and he starts building your life into what he wants it to become, usually that thing that you deep down want it to become, his primary partner in that is you. So in your life, God's primary partner in building the life that he wants to build is you. In your life, the primary partner is not me and it's not the church. <laughs> the primary partner in building your life is not your spouse. It's not your parents. It's you. This is important to remember because along life's journey, there are going to be offered to you all kinds of substitute leaders. It's not that they aren't a part of your journey, even an important part. I mean, my wife is certainly an important part of my journey and what God's doing in my life, but the primary partner in what God's doing in my life, God's primary partner is me. And that puts the responsibility on me. And for you, it puts it on you. This is a challenge. But without good self-leadership, I just wanna be clear, this is part of the the hard work and the heavy lifting we have to do today. Without good self-leadership, None of the good stuff that God wants to come into your life is going to come in a timely manner. It's going to get delayed. It's going to get put off. It's going to get mutated and changed. It's going to lose its luster. Self-leadership is difficult, and the hardest person you're ever going to lead is you. Point number two. Rebuilding broken down walls requires diligent self-leadership. If you're going to do the work of rebuilding... Now, we're talking about rebuilding because while Nehemiah was cut bare to the king, one day some guys came and gave a report to Nehemiah, to the king. Nehemiah overhears it, engages these people, and it's a report from the homeland. And here's how the report goes. Well, the building that Ezra, another prophet in our Bible, another guy who's contemporary with Nehemiah, the building that Ezra has done on the temple is good. It's like we're, we're moving. It's moving forward. But The walls of the city that protect the city, they're torn down. They're in ruins. In fact, the gates of the city are lying in ashes. They've been burned. The Bible says that when Nehemiah hears this, it wrecks him. It affects his heart. He doesn't just hear it with his ears. It doesn't just go into his brain. That news affects his heart. That his city, his beloved people, That they are unprotected. That there's some evidence of some good stuff going on, but they're unprotected. And in those days, the city walls were the primary form of protection. So that night, all the inhabitants of the city could be assured they could sleep with both eyes closed. Because without the walls, you got to sleep with one eye open. Because you never know who's going to sneak in and take your stuff, take your cattle, take the food that was hard to come by, take take your kids. That was a thing back then. They were coming, especially young ladies, they'd cart them off. And it it was very difficult in those days. And the city walls protected. Now, the next statement I'm going to make is just kind of just setting context for us. But if you think about emotionally where Nehemiah was at the time when he heard the news, hey, the the walls of the city are torn down and the the gates are in ashes, Nehemiah could have said, well, what can I do about that? I'm a a victim myself. I'm, I'm over here as a slave. I don't want to be here. And he could have, when he heard that news, he could have very much described the news to himself in his mind, could have thought about it in such a way that he put distance between him and the reality that was being brought to him. But he didn't do that. Out of all the hats that Nehemiah could have put on at that particular time, the one he chose to put on, we're going to discover, is the one of responsibility. The one where he says, I need to do something about this thing in our life. This thing that affects me emotionally and this thing that affects people I care about. I need to do something about this. So the next statement is just kind of making sure that we're clear on how You have to see yourself if you're going to rebuild. And I want to offer it with a certain amount of gentleness, but at the same time, clarity. Because the truth is, a lot of us in our lives right now have some walls that are torn down. I'm going to talk about how that happens in a minute. But you do. You came to today, and there's some walls in your life torn down. There's some things in ruin. There are some things that are burned and charred. If that's you, by the way, you're not alone. In fact, I bet everybody in the room have, have parts right now of their lives where some of that's true. Expectations weren't met. People took advantage. Dreams are deferred. Hope is, you know, still a pipe dream. And you want it to be different, but it's just not. And the idea of looking at that thing in your life, well, it's scary and it's, it's a little frustrating. And, and you even wonder if you have the energy and the emotional capacity to even do the thing. But in our next statement, I just want to be clear to you that it's hard to see yourself as a victim and as a leader at the same time. The truth is, there's some victims in the room. Some people in this room, you have been perpetrated against. It's true. Like, that's the reality of your life. And I, I'm so sorry that happened to you sincerely. That's not, I'm not trying to placate you. It's real. And the stuff people have done to you in your life was real and it's hurtful and, it, and it's hard to rebound from. But the raw truth of it is, the heavy lifting today, part of it is is that no matter how it came into your life, no matter how that damage happened to you, no matter what somebody has done to you and said about you, and even those very dark things that happen in a broken world like ours, if you're going to rebuild the walls in your life, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your dream, in your life purpose, to some degree you have to choose to not see yourself defined simply by that bad stuff that happened to you. I want to be sensitive, but I want to be clear. You are more than that thing that happened to you. You're more. You are not defined. Your identity is not completely wrapped up in that stuff that happened to you. When God looks at you and he sees you perfectly, he does not simply see the person scarred and marred and taken advantage of. No, no, he sees that stuff. It's real, but you are more than that. And if you're gonna rebuild to some degree, you have to begin to try to see yourself the way God sees you, as more than that. It requires a certain amount of bravery. <laughs> yeah, you have to look at the mess and go, all right, I don't really want to touch it, but I might have to go ahead and put on some gloves and do it anyway. It's it's like me when I used to, you know, watch the kids without Jill at home on occasion when the kids were young, and it seemed like whenever she'd leave, that's when they would have the blowout diaper, you know, the up-the-back diaper. I How does that physically, how does that happen? I don't... You know, your poop defies gravity and somehow goes uphill. I don't know how that happens. And I wouldn't want to touch the stuff, you know. I, I don't think we can wait for mom to come home. That seems like a total abdication of fatherhood. So, you know, yeah, you pinch your nose and you walk and you do, you do the hard work because you care. And if you're going to do the hard work here, there might be some nose pinching and some glove wearing. You've got to be brave. I'm not sure she was the smartest person in the world. She's probably at least average or above. And I'm not sure she's particularly known for bravery, but Mary Tyler Moore made a statement that I came across in my studies that I wanted to share with you. It's in your message notes. It's this. It says that you can't be brave if you've only had good things happen to you. If you had a cush life all along, if you've been totally protected, It's pretty hard then to look at other challenges and go, I can rise to that challenge. And some of what God's doing through the difficult stuff of your life is he's building in you a tenacity, a grit, a bravery. And that bravery is going to serve you well, but not just you. What happens in Nehemiah's life is going to serve Nehemiah. I mean, he's going to move from cupbearer to governor. That's pretty awesome. But it's gonna have profound impact on everybody around him. One more heavy lifting item. Just kind of setting the tone for the rest of our message series, all right? When you stop growing, you stop almost everything good in your life from growing. Sometimes when bad stuff happens to us, when we get disappointed, when our dreams are deferred, when the thing we want doesn't happen at the timetable, we think it should happen. When we worked really hard and we didn't get the results we wanted. We worked really hard and the people we wanted to see the work didn't see the work. When, sometimes when that happens, you, you retreat, you, you disengage. By the way, that's part of what's happened to a lot of marriages in the room. It's like You stood before God and an audience and you said, I want it to be like this. And it ended up not being like this. And that pain and that hurt created some emotional distance. One or both of you began to retract a little bit and you weren't fully engaged. Your your love isn't growing together. Your commitment's not growing together. There's a handful of people in this room. You have a call of God on your life. And I don't know if it's to be a, a pastor or a full-time minister, but you know beyond how you make a living, you have a call to kingdom work on your life. And you tried it a bit, and when it didn't quite go well, you pulled back. That's understandable. That makes sense. But until you reengage, until you commit to your growth again, All the good stuff you want in your life, the stuff that deep down you dream about, it's not going to happen. Because when you stop growing personally, almost everything else in your life that you're supposed to be a part of stops growing. One of the statements I teach my kids is is that leaders are readers, leaders are readers. I don't know any leader worth their salt who doesn't read and engage other stuff. There might be a few. You're probably the one that that's, you know, doesn't fit. But for the most part, leaders are readers. And the reason that's true, the reason why the people we look at and go, man, that lady, that guy, that, they're a good leader. Part of it is, is because they're always taking in new material. They're looking to grow. They're looking to, to advance. They, they know that the skills they have today aren't sufficient for the challenges of tomorrow. So here's Nehemiah, and he gets this news that the walls of the city are burnt down, and it grips his heart. And there's a series of things that are going to happen, and he's going to commit his life to making sure that those walls get rebuilt. He's going to do the hard self leadership, but then he's going to leverage influence, and he's going to do something bigger than himself. He's going to rise to the challenge in a way that's going to leave him and everybody around him better for it. By the way, that's the call on you today. To rise to the next step that God has for you. And when you do it, I want to be clear of the payoff. You will be better for it. When I rise to the challenges that God puts in front of me and I actually step into it, I'm better for that process of engagement. The growth that happens in me as I push forward as God calls, you'll be better for it. It, it will make a difference in your marriage. Like it it can make a difference in your parenting, on your job, in your life purpose. Some of you, you're you're, you're wrestling with this next idea. And I'm telling you, it'll make a difference here. It'll make a difference in your legacy, like what you will be remembered for as you press in. When you read the story of Nehemiah, don't make the mistake of thinking that this is just some historical guy in the past who did something neat in the Bible. Uh Uh-uh. His is a common story of a person who looks at their life and goes, here's where I am and there's where the challenge is. And I know God's calling me to step towards it, to not run away. He's calling me to put on my gloves and get in there and do the work. And I bet you we wouldn't have to go too far if we could talk one-on-one over coffee at Waffle House. I bet we wouldn't have to go too long till you and I could identify, I know I could do it for me, four or five areas where God's calling me to move forward. And I bet you, if you were honest, there are four or five areas of life right now, general categories, where God's calling you to move forward, to not be stuck, to not be not growing, to not be soft, but to be brave. So let me give you some questions for clarity here. Here's the first question I want to ask you today. Maybe for this one there's not yet an answer, but I'm praying that in the next few days there will be. Here it is. What grips your heart? What grips your heart. Now, it's just kind of a question, by the way, that uh, makes a lot of people think that uh, church is all about emotion or that it it more directly connects to to women perhaps than men because I'm asking you for just a second to think about your feelings. What in your life that when you think about it, do you have an emotional reaction to it? A deep down, not just a logical sense, hey, that should probably be better, but a fundamental, like you lay awake at night, or perhaps you used to, you lay awake at night and you say, I want that thing there to grow. I want that to be better. Or this situation in our marriage should not be this way. What grips your heart? What is it about the world around you that you look at and go, man? If I could, I'd change that thing. These are the kinds of places where when you process them, when you think about them, when you pray on them, when you talk to trusted advisors about them, these are the kinds of things that tend to rise up and become defining challenges in your life. And When you give yourself to them, it changes you. When you give yourself to them, It changes the people around you. Let let a man in this room today say, the quality of my marriage is no longer where I want it to be. I want us to have a true intimacy and a real trust. And I want us to partner together and do something powerful together as a couple for God's kingdom. Let a man in this room rise up and say that today. And I can tell you a couple things are going to happen. I don't know what it's going to end up like, but I know this. Along the journey, you will become qualitatively a better man. The kind of man that I want my sons to become like, who aren't just going through life satisfying adolescent urges, but they're stepping into potential and role and difference making. But I know this that doesn't come natural, and it's not easy. I mean, the easiest thing for Nehemiah, out of all the slave positions, he has the best one, man. He's the cupbearer to the king. He gets the choice food. Now, granted, it might be poisonous, but if he lives, it's the choice food. And he lives in the king's house, and he's never far, and the king, he gets to hear all the private conversations the king is having. Out of all the roles, his is the best, but he's still a slave. He's not happy with it. Look at what Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 3 or 4. These are the people who are talking, and Nehemiah hears them. The walls of Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And when I heard this, look what he did. I sat down and wept. In fact, for days, I mourned, I fasted, I prayed to the God of heaven. I'm just going to throw this out there, but I bet you there's some prayers you used to pray. And some hopes you used to have. And it's been a long time since you've engaged God on those issues that are deep in your heart. I bet you there's a handful of us that that's true for. And whether it's just the passing of time, I I don't know why it is that we stop pressing and stop growing. I don't know if it's just fatigue. I know that hope deferred. You know, over time, the, the heart grows faint. I know that happens. I know it's easy to grow weary and doing what is right and you forget that in due season you'll reap a harvest if you don't faint. I know it's just hard today to be tenacious and have grit. I, I know it is. But this news gripped Nehemiah's heart. So let me make a few points here. I have found that brokenness usually precedes building. Can we just be clear? Your marriage probably isn't going to drift to better health. The intimacy between you and your spouse probably isn't going to drift towards betterment. Your parenting and your engagement of your kids and the influence you're supposed to play probably is not going to drift naturally by the course of time and busyness and all that life happens. It probably isn't going to drift to just getting better. And that thing that deep down you're worried about for your kids, it probably isn't going to just drift. And I mean, time will pass and there will be change, but it's probably not going to Most good things in life don't drift towards betterment. And that's why a a great leader of a generation ago came along and he gave us a line I want to give to you. We're talking about self-leadership here. He says, Max Dupree said, the first job of a leader is to define reality. So let me ask you a question, leader, leader of your life. What is the reality of your life today? The reality of it. I, I know, listen. I know you might, I wish I had gloves for all of you. I know so this is a little heavy, can be. But what is the reality of your life today? The first job of your self-leadership is to look at that thing blatantly and clearly and to bring a certain candor to your own self. Or you can, you know, eat away the urges. That's my go-to. Or you can adrenaline away the urges. That's my second favorite go-to, eating and adventure. That's why I love vacation. Oh, my gosh, I love vacation. For me, vacation is all about eating and adventure. Oh, I love it, right? And then I don't think about any of you guys. That's why I love getting away from here. I and mean, I love what I do, but I love getting away from it, right? For Nehemiah, though, there was no getting away from the reality that had gripped his heart, So you can do all kinds of things to push it away. But it begs the second question in your message notes. For what will you take personal responsibility? For what will you take personal responsibility? Look at what Nehemiah did. Handful of verses here. He goes to the Lord in prayer, and then we're given the prayer. Here's what it says. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those whom who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayers. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess, look, look at these words, I confess that we have sinned against you. He's like talking corporately about all of us. God, I know we're partly in the situation we're in because we walked away from you. We didn't do what was right. We let, before the walls, of, look at this, before the walls of the city got torn down, the walls of our lives got torn down. Before the walls of our city were in disarray, the walls of our heart were in disarray. That's a truth, right? By the way, that right there might be all you needed for today. It could be that the situation in your life is the way it is because your personal walls got torn down long before the reality of broken walls in your life took effect. He says, so I know that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned, he says. I love it when I'm talking to a couple when I used to do a lot of counseling and they come in and they are it's all we language and we this and we that and we that. And so the wife will talk about the problem and it's we and the husband. And I know we've turned a corner when somebody starts using a different pronoun. When they start talking, I. I do this. I respond this way. I don't do this. I. That's when we're making progress. But as long as it's you, 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 that ain't gonna work. Or when it's we... But when it becomes I, now that's when a person begins to grow. And we've sinned terribly by not obeying the commands and decrees and the regulations you have given us through your servant Moses. But please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, even then if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. So the first question was, what grips your heart? The second question was, for what will you take personal responsibility? And the third question, what commitments will you make? It's one thing to be emotionally stirred. You know, we should get about that one day. Our finances, you know, we're two decades into our marriage and we've never really had a plan. We should finally, it's one thing to make a commitment, to have an emotional stirring. It's a completely different thing to say, all right, Here's all the financial records that I could find. And by the way, that took way much longer than it should have given how old we are. But here they all are in one place. And I'm embarrassed by how much time and effort it's taken. But here we are. Now here's the commitment to actually move forward. When you read this book, one thing becomes clear. Nehemiah wasn't looking around him for somebody else to solve the problem that had gripped his heart. It's as if he looked in the mirror and said, here's the commitment I'm going to make. So after prayer, lots of prayer, lots of engagement with uh, his mind and his thinking and his heart, he finally sets out what he believes God would like for him to do. And you get a hint of it in chapter 1, verse 11. Here's what he says. God, please grant me success today. By making the king favorable to me and put it in his heart to be kind to me. And then he says, In those days I was cupbearer to the king. Here's the plan that Nehemiah is hatching. He's gonna tell the king what's on his heart. Now this is dangerous. But over time they've probably built a certain rapport, and the the cupbearer often had the ear of the king, and Nehemiah always came in with a pleasurable. A disposition, but one day he comes in and the Bible says that his face had fallen, his countenance had changed. And the king says, what's wrong? This isn't likely. You're always on your A-game. And Nehemiah had been praying and thinking and doing the hard work, and he was waiting for an opportunity to share with the king what was on his heart. And so he does. King Artaxerxes, it's hard for me to be happy when the people of my homeland by implied the people that you and your, you know, your, your, your predecessor, the one you guys wrecked havoc on my people. It's hard for me to be happy while they're having such hardship and while their city is unprotected. And you've allowed some people to go back with Ezra to do some work, but they're unprotected and, and, and I, I, I'm burdened down with where they are. It's gripped my heart. I can't let it go. So there are two big commitments I want to challenge you to make no matter what's going on in your life today. The first one is for prayer. Long before Nehemiah began to talk about it, process it with other people, he's talking about it to the Lord. God, I want your perspective on this. I want to know what you think about this. God, what would you have me do? And by the way, followers of Jesus in the room, I just want it to be crystal clear, all right? Prayer is not the thing you do to kind of check off a spiritual box, Prayer is the stuff you do to invite God to speak into all the areas of your life. And I bet you, I bet you, I'm just going to throw this out. I bet you there's a handful of Christians in this room, and you used to pray about the thing that that had gripped your heart, but it's been been a long time since you've really prayed about it. And it could be today that the first stone of rebuilding your life and putting it where God wants it to be, that could be that the very first stone is the, the prayer stone. You just need to put that back in place and once again, start talking to God about what's going on in your life. And for those of you who have never really done that, like you're following Jesus, you're going to go to heaven, but you're not really a prayer. I just want to challenge you. Talking to God, putting this stone in place and rebuilding, talking to God about what's going on in your life will revolutionize the way you think about what's going on in your life. Here's a second big commitment that Nehemiah made. He didn't just pray, but I like this. He acted. Prayer and action. Pray, 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 and get to work. Somebody asked John Wesley, the great Methodist reformer whose preaching changed Europe and all of America back in the 1700s. Asked him about prayer and action, and Wesley came up with this slogan I want to give you. He said, pray as if it all depends upon God, and work as if it all depends upon you. That's the attitude of putting on the gloves and doing the spiritual work as well as the hands-on work that's required. Let me give you another statement, though. The idea here is, is that Nehemiah wanted favor with the king. And so he went to God and he said, God, give me favor with the king. Let me tell you what Nehemiah knew that a lot of us don't know. Nehemiah knew that favor with people is from the Lord. Favor is from the Lord. The Bible says over and over again that God will give you favor with people. My mentor used to pray this every time we were together. God, give me favor with people that can open doors that no man can shut. God, give me favor with people that have resources that I need to accomplish the work you've put in my life. God, give me favor with people that can introduce me to people. Every time we were together and he prayed... That's what he prayed for. He knew that favor is from the Lord. I want to tell you that God has put people in your life that can be a part of the journey of rebuilding in your life. And that is a gift from God. So talk to him about that. If, if, If you're stuck in a place and somebody else can help you, pray and ask God to give you favor with them. And see what he does. It's all built on this basic idea that there's no true success apart from the Lord. And you can't build a life apart from God. Not in have the kind of life that God wants for you. All right, you can certainly do it. And you can't accomplish the deepest longings of your heart apart from God. And so going to God with what's on your heart is part of bringing him in. It's part of rebuilding those walls. So here's the fourth big question for you today. And perhaps in, in one sense it might be the biggest one. Will you walk in fear? Or will you walk in courage? Like, do you even have the boldness and the bravery to even look at the wall and take an honest assessment? And if so, do you have the bravery to put on the gloves and start picking up the stones with the Lord's help and putting them in place? Will you walk in fear and courage? In chapter 2 of Nehemiah, he gives these words. He's he's already moved on. He's engaging the... uh, The wall building process and it comes up against a little bit of obstacle because if you start rebuilding the walls in your life I can assure you there's going to be some challenges here's what Nehemiah says he says I delivered the king's letters to the people that he was informing that he's there to rebuild the wall that's why I'm here The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect him. So the king was favorable. Nehemiah starts moving forward, and the king says, Don't just go by yourself. I'm going to send you my people with you. But then look what happened. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, heard these are two people who were leaders in the homeland when they heard that Nehemiah was back, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. He had resistance. Other people didn't like it. It was frustrating to them. And so Nehemiah had to make a basic decision. Am I going to press in or am I going to give in to the resistance? Let, let, Let me tell you something about brave people. Brave people are often afraid. They are. To be brave is not to be absent of fear, but to be brave is to press through, even in the fear, even wondering if it's going to make a difference. Even in saying, I've done it before. Even in picking yourself up off the couch and saying, I'm going to get after it like I've not gotten after it in a long time. Even when all the obstacles and excuses are there, brave people get up. And you have a choice today to be brave or to be fearful. And here's the thing about brave brave people. Brave people believe that something is more important than fear. You know what causes some men to run into a burning building while everybody else is running out? It's not that they aren't afraid something can happen to them. They just think there's something more important in the fire worth sacrificing over. That's what makes firemen run into the building and pull people out of the building. They're very aware of what could happen. They're the most aware people of what could happen. But something in them says, that thing in there is more important than this thing out here. And they run in. Brene Brown, who writes about the courage required in relationships for them to grow, says it this way. She says that you can choose courage or you can choose comfort, but you can't choose both. You can choose courage or you can choose. And that's the choice in front of you today when it comes to the broken walls of our lives. Will you be courageous or are you going to stay where you are? I want to challenge you. Press forward because the dream that God has for you is much bigger than anything you've thought. And if there are dreams that you've given up on, there are things that are deferred. If there are things that have happened to you, you never would have chosen for yourself. If there are broken down walls through neglect, through what somebody else has done, uh, through weeds that have grown up and taken root, whatever they are, God can rebuild them. Over the next few weeks, I want you to let us push you to put on the gloves and let God rebuild. I want you to grab out your Connect card and let's take a couple steps together. So, I want to give you a chance today to make Jesus the official leader of your life and you become the partner. So, next step A says, Today I'm making Jesus my Lord and Savior. I'm making Jesus my Lord and Savior. The Bible says that as Savior, he is the forgiver of your sins. He washes you and gives you a fresh start. And as the Lord, he is the leader of your life. He's the CEO, if you will. And you can do that by acknowledging that his death and resurrection is the pathway for you to have a relationship with your heavenly father. Take the pen and check next step A on your Connect card that you began to fill out earlier. When the offer buckets come by, you just put it in there. Or next step B, today, I'm choosing to be baptized you're going to see two folks baptized here in a moment a husband and a wife and God's been dramatically at work in their lives that's a great thing to celebrate and if you have questions about it go ahead and check the box and we'll get you started for the next baptism or next step see here's a prayer I want to offer you to pray along with me every morning this week we'll send it to you God break my heart for the walls that are broken down in my life and give me courage to own my part and move forward Help me to trust you more as I take the steps to rebuild the walls and make me brave, make me brave to go after it. All right, here's another prayer that maybe is a prayer appropriate for you. It says, hey, hey, staff, leaders, pastors, pray pray for me this way. Pray for me to see the walls God wants to rebuild in my lives and the courage to take my next steps. It could be that while I'm talking, you're just a little bit fuzzy about what's next. Let's pray for God to give you clarity on what you need. And the next step e is about life here, and it says, I'll give to our Easter offering before midnight next Sunday, kind of when we're cutting it off. I hope to be able to stand up here and say, here's all the ways we're moving forward. Or if not, I'll say, here's kind of the ways we're adjusting, all right? But if you haven't given to our Easter offering, try to do it between now and next Sunday midnight. Once you put that card aside, and if you call this church home, we're preparing right now to receive our tithe and offering that we give back to God a portion of what he's blessed us with. And so... Uh, as you prepare to give your gifts today, I'd like you to just kind of keep one thing in mind. It's a it's a little truth that I was given as a child that it all belongs to God, every bit of it. And so when I give back to him a portion of what he's blessed with me with, it's really the most natural and logical and fair and hopeful thing I can do. God, it all belongs to you, so here's a portion I'm giving back to you you're our guest today, this part of the service is really not for you. Your participation is your connect card in the offering bucket. But if you call this church home, you know that we depend on the money that you give to make the ministry around here happen. And we're grateful that you're a very generous congregation. Let's bow and ask God to be with our next steps in our offering. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our church life. God, I want to thank you that you're rebuilding walls around here. We have evidence of that happening right here today. In this baptism celebration, we're grateful, God, that you're at work. I want to thank you, Lord, for all the folks that showed up last week and for the the salvations that occurred. It's, again, proof, Father, that you are constantly at work among us. Now, Father, I pray today that you would make us brave, that we would step in and we'd be willing to look with open eyes at the broken walls in front of us, that we would see where it is that you want to rebuild and direct us to rebuild in our lives that we'd have a burden from you that motivates us and encourages us and draws us forward. And we look forward, God, to testimony of how it is that you're going to build our lives as we follow you. Father, I lift up right now the folks that have taken next steps. I pray, Father, for those folks that are declaring, Jesus, be my Lord, be my Savior, wash away my sins. I trust you with my life. I have nothing to bring, so I trust the work that Jesus accomplished on his cross and in his resurrection. I trust in that alone to save me. And Father, I pray that you would give us an incredible amount of courage to step forward and see what it is you would have us give ourselves to. God, would you take today our next steps and would you take our offerings and would you help them both to go farther than we could ever go on our own. We look forward to all that you're going to do. We pray this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.